Sisters, sisters, there were never such devoted sisters. Never had to have a chaperone, no sir. I'm here to keep my eye on her. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. I'm your host, Tori Telfer, and we are in the final week of Sister Month. Guys, have we liked Sister Month? I know the subject matter has ranged from dark to super dark and back again. Well, The Mirabal sisters were very inspiring, but there was still darkness there. Um, But subject matter aside, I have just loved having a theme. Doesn't everything feel so nice when you have a theme, so tidy and organized? It's like, I know my place in the world. I'm in week three of sister month. (laughs) So next month, we're going to go back to business as usual with the only theme being criminal broads. But I'm definitely going to do more theme months in the future. I think that's it just feels right. So if you have any suggestions for themes and don't tell me like just don't 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 suggest a theme that's like hacked up body parts because you know how I feel about that. If you have any suggestions for themes, email me criminalbroads at gmail.com. Speaking of email, I have another magical, mystical sister anecdote to share with you that was shared with me via email. This one's from Stephanie. She says I met my sister when I was 33 years old. She reached out to me due to a medical issue with her son. Shocked and dismayed to learn I had a half-sister so late in my life, I was lost as to what to do. I ended up assisting her with the information she was looking for, and we began to talk. It turned out that she had known about me for about five years prior and had formed a relationship with my mother after a letter she sent looking for her father. Upon talking and eventually meeting in person, we realized how much alike we really were. Not only did we look like twins, but how we viewed the world and raised our children along the same lines. To make it even more eerie, we shared a birthday, two years apart. When we are together, others are in shock as to our mirrored mannerisms, wording, and sense of humor. We are the essence of nature versus nurture. I grew up with my dad and my mom, while she grew up without a dad and a mom who was absent. I hate the fact that I lost so many years I could have had with my sister, but I am thankful she reached out to me. Our bond is as if no time has passed between us. All right, today's sister story is an incredibly spooky, strange, heartbreaking one. This was recommended by my amazing listener, Caitlin F., And thank you, Caitlin, for alerting me to this story because I'd never heard it before. We're going to talk about the lives of the Gibbons twins. Now, I write and podcast and write about a lot of female criminals and ladies of all stripes. Um, And while I'm in each case, they definitely move me. But I do sometimes feel like the sheer volume of cases I cover, it's like I can't get too attached, so to speak. Um, Sometimes I write and produce, and then I move on. But the case of the Gibbons twins, this one has gotten under my skin, guys. This is just one of those one of those stories where I just felt super weird after researching it. I was kind of in a funk, walking around in a haze. And you'll see why. Um, It will probably affect you, too. It's a very 
gosh, I don't even know how to describe this story. Let's just get into it, okay? And we can unpack it at the end, or you can email me your thoughts. But it's definitely a striking one. All right, so we are going to England. No, to Wales, to the United Kingdom. And we're, let's see, they were born in the 60s. I believe a lot of this action happens like in the late 70s, 80s, where we are going to meet our final pair of sisters. June and Jennifer Gibbons were born 10 minutes apart on an April day in the 1960s. Later, as teens, they became obsessed with star signs, and they thought that June was born at 8 a.m. and Jennifer was born at 8.10. They used those birth times to pore over their horoscopes, interpret their personalities, and predict their futures. 8 a.m. and 8.10. But then their mother told them that they were wrong. June wasn't born at 8. She was born at 8.10. And Jennifer was born at 8.20. In other words, Jennifer's horoscope actually belonged to June. This broke Jennifer's heart. It's all a mistake, a tragedy, she wrote in her diary. My horoscope has nothing to do with me. My position has been taken by June. My poor beloved sign has been snatched from me. June Allison and Jennifer Lorraine were born into a family that was close-knit and happy, at least at first. There were five of them, parents Gloria and Aubrey, older siblings Greta and David, twins June and Jennifer, and eventually a younger sister named Rosie. Gloria and Aubrey were from Barbados, but they had moved their whole family to England to live a happy little British life. At least, that was Aubrey's dream. He loved England. He was obsessed with England, and he envisioned a proper English life for himself there. Green yard, white fence, tea time, the queen. He found work as a technician for the Royal Air Force, and he moved his family from station to station around the United Kingdom— But every little town they moved to was chillier and whiter and more suspicious of outsiders than the last one. And as the years went by, Aubrey seemed to let go of his British dream. He'd come home from work, switch on the TV, and wait to be served his dinner there. Perhaps what he saw on screen was happier and more communal than what he experienced in real life. By the time the twins were three, they were happy and healthy, but they were hardly talking. They had maybe three or four words that they'd say, and that was it. Their parents knew this wasn't totally normal, but they figured that speech would come eventually, as most milestones did. But instead of talking more, the twins began to talk less. When they were eight, the Gibbons family moved, like they always did, and the girls were the only black kids at their new school— They were bullied horribly by their fellow eight-year-olds. To survive, the twins stopped making eye contact with anyone but each other. And then they went a step further. They made a pact to stop talking. They couldn't have predicted, at eight years old, how terribly this pact would change their lives. 
It wasn't just that they stopped talking to everyone but each other. The pact seemed to go deeper than that. It was like they couldn't be different at all. They had to do everything the same. They had to move in the same way and feel the same way about things. The girls would communicate with each other with barely perceptible eye movements, so that from the outside, it looked like they were the same person who just happened to be split into two identical bodies. They didn't talk to their teachers and their tormentors, and they didn't talk to their family either. As June told a journalist later, we started suffering and we stopped talking. When they spoke to each other, they spoke in English mixed with slang from Barbados, but they spoke so fast that no one could understand them at all. Instead, the girls sounded like birds, twittering to each other in a language all their own. At age 11, the twins moved again to a town in Wales called Haverford West. This was a town that one journalist described as being full of chilly xenophobes. The bullying got worse there. So did the silence from the twins. At the family dinner table, they wouldn't look up from their plates. At school, when they were attacked, they'd turn to face each other and they would put their arms on each other's shoulders in a pathetic little huddle. They were bullied so badly there that they had to be dismissed five minutes early to get a head start on their bullies. They would walk home in single file, perfectly synced up, in a strange march that one observer called a kind of goose step. And still, their parents insisted that they were just kind of shy, and their teachers mostly shrugged and gave up on them. Nobody knew what to do with these two skinny black girls who just stood there and looked at the floor for hours and hours— they looked so much alike and acted exactly the same that sometimes people couldn't tell them apart, and people sometimes suspected uneasily that the girls were pretending to be each other. Who was June, and who was Jennifer? The twins didn't always know this themselves. As June said later, one day she'd wake up and be me, and one day I would wake up and be her. And we used to say to each other, Give me back myself. If you give me back myself, I'll give you back yourself. There was one difference between the girls that some people picked up on. One of them seemed more powerful than the other. I've had 6,000 children go through my hands in 30 years, said one of their teachers, and I've encountered only four I felt were evil. One was a boy who raped the daughter of a best friend. Another eventually shot a boy. A third was found guilty of rape and assault. The fourth was Jennifer. The first person to really insist that the twins needed help was a guy with a needle. He was a school medical officer, and he came by the girls' school to vaccinate all the children. He was used to children being scared of the shot, and so he had all sorts of little jokes prepared to make kids feel at ease. And so he was struck, well, shocked, really, when the twins didn't react at all to the vaccine. They reminded him of zombies— when he held their arms to vaccinate them, he said that their arms felt dead. He was so disturbed by this that he went to the headmaster and then to a child psychiatrist. 
When the psychiatrist met with June and Jennifer, they sat there like stones, eyes downcast. But when he turned away, he could hear them moving with incredible speed right behind him. They were taunting him, playing a game. This irritated him. Lots of adults found the girls kind of irritating, actually. Many of them would note that they could tell the girls had incredible willpower. They seemed to be choosing to be silent, choosing not to move, rather than unable to speak, unable to move. Of course, these interpretations underestimated the power of the girls' pact. But eventually, faced with their silence, the psychiatrist turned them over to a speech therapist. The girls started working with the speech therapist, Anne, in February of 1977. Anne gave it her best shot, but she too found the twins incredibly difficult. They wouldn't budge an inch. Still, through their silence, Anne could sense something unequal about their relationship. I could see June dying to tell me things, she said. Then something would happen. Jennifer was stopping June. She never moved. I watched and could barely detect the slightest eye movement, but I know she was stopping June. It was strange, like extrasensory perception. She sat there with an expressionless gaze, but I felt her power. She made all the decisions. The thought entered my mind that June was possessed by her twin. But what could Anne do? You couldn't force someone to talk. So the girls moved through specialist after specialist, making very little progress. At age 14, they were sent to a different school, the Eastgate Center for Special Education, eight miles away from their home. There, they continued to resist any and all treatment. Every morning, a teacher drove them to school, and the girls would never get inside of her car of their own accord. Neither wanted to get in first, and so they were paralyzed. Their teacher would have to physically push each girl into the car, one by one, making their knees bend and maneuvering their heads under the roof of the car, like she was a policeman, and they were two tiny, silent criminals. Now, behind the scenes, the girls were growing sick of their pact. They wanted to talk. They wanted to make friends at school, tell jokes, flirt with their crushes. They longed to talk to their family. At night, the twins would kneel by their beds, chant verses from the Bible, and beg God to let them talk. We'd pray to Him not to let us hurt our family by ignoring them, to give us strength to talk to our mother, our father, June said later. We couldn't do it. Hard it was. Too hard. It became clear to some of their teachers that the twins needed to be separated. They were locked in something toxic, and maybe separation could yank them out of it. Strangely enough, the twins agreed with this. They fantasized about being separated, sent to different countries. In her diary, Jennifer wrote, We think it best if we separate. We are both awaiting each other to talk and change. We are both willing to lead our own lives, but when we are together, we just keep depending on each other too much. But when a teacher told the girls that the separation was actually going to happen— the girls sprang at each other, fighting so violently that they drew blood. The idea of separation was appealing, but the reality was unbearable. Still, it had to happen. Jennifer was left at Eastgate, while June was taken to another school. At the new school, June refused to move. 
She would sit in her classes, crying silently as tears poured down her cheeks, but she wouldn't lift a single finger to wipe them away. In her diary, she wrote that she was lonely, hungry, bitter, angry, and furious that Jennifer was the one who got to stay at their old, familiar school. The girls could never stand the slightest whiff of inequality in their relationship. It made them sick to think that one of them was leading a better life than the other. A teacher at the new school noticed that June seemed like she was on a leash to her sister. There was something almost mystic about their relationship, said the teacher, like black magic. After a weekend spent at home, neither twin would return to their school, so they were reunited. But despite the joy of being back together, things were getting worse for the twins. They were losing weight, and they didn't seem to care about their appearances anymore. They would hold their hair back with paper clips and curling tongs. They'd tie their underwear together with rope or wire. Surely none of this made their classmates treat them any better. Meanwhile, their mom continued to insist that they were just shy. Their dad continued to watch TV. Their older siblings were sick of the girls, sick of their silence. Their teachers were starting to despair. June herself was starting to despair. Sometimes Jennifer would look at her and chant, You are Jennifer. You are me. In response, June would sob, I am June. I am June. But it didn't change anything. It didn't break the pact. Let's take a quick break to hear from our, very chill, sponsors. Our first sponsor is Daily Harvest. Okay, I know some of you, all of you, live all around the country, all around the world. But have you had some real summer days recently? Like, we've had some days in their 90s. And let me tell you, I cannot, will not, and do not want to turn on my stove. But I need to eat, like, consistently throughout the day and I don't want to order takeout for every meal it's too expensive it's not healthy enough enter daily harvest which lives in my freezer daily harvest delivers delicious harvest bowls flatbreads smoothies and more all built on organic fruits and vegetables aka health aka immortal life right to your door. These foods take literally minutes to prepare. You like dump in your blender, blend, or dump on a pan on the stovetop. Okay, I know that's the stove, but it's not the oven. <laughs> Heat it for like two minutes and you're good to go. My personal summer favorite is Daily Harvest's ice cream. It's called Daily Harvest Scoops. It's a plant-based ice cream. Again, aka health. They have other things like a mango and papaya smoothie that's super good, an artichoke and lemon harvest bowl for when you're feeling like you need some vegetables in your life. So stay cool, calm, and collected during the summer heat. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter code CRIMINALBROADS to get $25 off your first box. That's code CRIMINALBROADS for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. Dailyharvest.com. Our second sponsor, we're going to change the tone a little bit, is Dipsy. Everyone needs 
an escape, shall we say, a place where our minds can go to wander freely. But those can be hard to come by right now for multiple reasons, which you'll see if you go to the front page of thenewyorktimes.com. Enter Dipsy. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories designed to turn you on. Let yourself get lost in a world where good things happen, doesn't that sound nice, and where your pleasure is the only priority. Hashtag self-care. Dipsy has stories like hooking up with your hometown crush or the coworker you always had a little thing for. They release new content every week, so there's always new stuff. If you're tired about the hooking up with your hometown crush story, don't worry, next week there'll be another crush for you. And if you need to wind down, enter Dipsy at night. They have wellness sessions, sensual bedtime stories, and even soundscapes to help you relax before you drift off. Ah. So for listeners of my show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30 days free, a 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash criminal broads. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash criminal broads, dipsystories.com slash criminal broads. By the time the girls were 16, the educational system had pretty much given up on them. The girls left Eastgate and were now on unemployment, living at home. Their narrow lives grew even narrower, at least from the outside. They would go out on Tuesdays to collect their unemployment checks, and otherwise they would leave notes for their mom if they wanted something. Here's one from Jennifer. Mom, could you get us a lined notebook today? Here's one from June. Don't bring lunch until 4 p.m. We're busy. Thanks, June. They would watch TV while sitting on the stairs because they refused to be in the living room with their family members. If anyone came out of the living room while they were watching TV to use the bathroom or grab a snack from the kitchen, the twins would scatter. They went to their older sister Greta's wedding in matching clothes, and they ruined it by standing stock still for four hours looking at the floor the entire time. The Gibbons family thought that June and Jennifer hated them. Their older siblings couldn't stand them. They found the girls infuriating, difficult. But one of the many tragedies of the twins' lives was that the girls actually loved their family. They wanted a happy family. They wanted to be a real part of their family. And they also couldn't wait to get married and have kids themselves. They were obsessed with the idea of being mothers— but they just couldn't open their mouths and talk. So they tried to show their love in other ways. They bought Christmas presents for their family. And on their parents' anniversary, the twins brought them breakfast in bed. But they did it all in silence, without eye contact. And then they'd run upstairs and pour out their hearts in their diaries. June wrote, I lack something, but it's not love. I love Rosie, Greta, David, Phil, Mom, and Dad. I worry about my mother. I see grief for all those years in her eyes. She is not young, but she is a romantic, a child at heart. 
I cannot bear to die before my parents. I cannot bear to walk on the graves of my parents, put down flowers, and feel lost. When their older sister, Greta, brought over her new baby, the girls turned their back on her, and Greta rushed away crying. The tragedy was that the girls had been dying to meet their little niece. They dreamed about it for days, and they'd even stolen two teddy bears as a gift for the baby. They wanted so badly to hold her. And then the big moment came, and their pact kicked in. Not only could they not talk, but they couldn't even look at the baby. They were trapped. And so they poured all their hopes and dreams and vivid teenage imaginations into other things, like dolls. The girls were obsessed with dolls. Along with their little sister, Rosie, who was the only member of their family that they would ever sometimes talk to, they created elaborate doll families full of twins and adopted babies and children who died young of terrible things. They sewed clothes for them. They made their own radio station for the dolls called Radio Gibbons, where the twins would tell their faithful doll listeners all about the weather, they would share the latest recipes, and they would even dole out helpful hints for taking care of children. There was a pastor doll, a doctor doll. They kept faithful records of all the many ways that their dolls died. One died from a back injury, another from a cracked skull, a third from eczema. Once, the twins even gathered up their courage and went trick-or-treating, hiding under sheets as their tape recorder chirped, trick-or-treat. They did all this to gather candy so that they could throw an elaborate Halloween party for their dolls. One Christmas, their mom gave the twins red diaries with little locks. And then writing became another way that the twins could express themselves. They kept incredibly detailed diaries. Sometimes they'd edit their entries multiple times until they were perfect. They asked their mom for typewriters and would stay up all night banging away at the keys, writing short stories and poems and essays and novels. They signed up for a writing course as one person, student 8201, and they made lists of difficult words, rhyming words, similes, metaphors, synonyms, antonyms, they read every classic book they could get their hands on, from the Bronte sisters to D.H. Lawrence. It was an education better than many an English major could hope for. And just as they did with their dolls, they packed their writing full of all the color and horror of a life that was passing them by. And the girls weren't just writing to write. They were sure they'd become famous writers. This was going to be their ticket to money and love and happiness and normalcy. They took author photos of each other, and they pooled their welfare checks to self-publish June's novel, which was called Pepsi-Cola Addict. Pepsi-Cola Addict was the wild story of a 14-year-old white American boy who was addicted to Pepsi and who eventually died after washing down a bunch of pills with a can of the good stuff. It was teenage writing, a bit moralistic, but overall, the girls' writing was good. It was vivid, surprising, unusual, self-aware. Not to make too fine a point of it, but it was really the only way the twins could speak. And their speech on the page was lovely. Lovely. 
the girls grew from 16 to 17 and then 18, they were forced to come face-to-face with the fact that they were growing up. At first, they didn't like it. They bound their breasts, and they worried about their sexual urges, thinking that they were total freaks for feeling turned on. But by age 17 and a half, they had gone from resisting womanhood to craving it. As Jennifer wrote in her diary, it was the most turbulent period of my youth. Jay and I endlessly arguing, lost, bored, frustrated, angry. Ah, we thought, youth was passing us by. They became obsessed with boys, and they would stalk local teenagers, spying on them through a shared pair of binoculars. They bought books on witchcraft and tried to cast spells to bring their crushes to their house. They'd make prank calls to boys, giggling on the other line, and they slipped notes under one boy's door that read things like, Dearest Darren, we adore you, we love you, we will have you for ourselves, your secret admirers. Now, remember how their father, Aubrey Gibbons, was obsessed with England? The girls had their own country that they were obsessed with. America. They loved America. They set all their stories in America. They made their dolls American. They even made up American slang to use in their novels, like this great line from Pepsi Cola Addict. Listen, don't get nifty with me. Actually, it wasn't just America that they were obsessed with, but specifically Malibu. All their dolls and protagonists seemed to live in Malibu. Not a sparkly, celebrity-driven Malibu, but a gritty, crime-ridden Malibu. A Malibu that their biographer described as being sort of like Clockwork Orange. Their characters were often white, high school age, and troubled. They slept with their teachers and robbed convenience stores. And so perhaps it was no surprise that the girls got their biggest crush— on three white American boys who lived nearby. June and Jennifer had had a classmate at Eastgate named Lance Kennedy, a beautiful but troubled American boy who'd been nice to them. They were never able to talk to him, but they left him love notes. And now, several years later, they managed to find his parents' house. And they began frankly, stalking the family. They took a taxi there, they walked through the unlocked door, and they made themselves at home, eating peanut butter sandwiches, drinking orange juice, and rifling through all of their stuff. The parents came home and found the girls. The girls immediately fell silent, and the parents took pity on them and let them go. But the girls weren't done. Lance Kennedy himself lived in America by then, but he had three younger brothers who were handsome and tousled and rude and very troubled. Their mother had killed herself when the three of them were in the house, and now their father and stepmother ignored them. So the boys spent all their time drinking and smoking and huffing glue and running around with local girls. June and Jennifer tried, with creepy persistence and outrageous outfits, to integrate themselves into the boys' lives. They would spend hours getting ready, putting on long wigs, lipstick, miniskirts, sunglasses, high heels. Then they'd take a taxi to the boys' house, and then they'd kind of lurk around, waiting for the boys to notice them, and hoping that this time they'd be able to talk. The boys introduced them to whiskey and weed, and the girls discovered that substances had the magical ability of loosening their tongues. 
What luck. Without the whiskey, we didn't speak, said June later. We reckoned that God told us to buy drink, and it worked. We sniffed glue and lighter fluid. We were different then, laughing and talking. We were so relaxed and laid back. As the summer went on, the girls became more and more obsessed with thoughts of sex. Once they tried to seduce their taxi driver, jumping on him and scratching at him with their long nails. But their hottest dreams were reserved for the Kennedy boys. In the meantime, the boys treated them like dirt. They ignored the girls. They hit them. Once, they literally threw food into their mouths as though the girls were dogs. But to the girls, who were starved for interaction with their peers and desperate for boyfriends, everything the Kennedy boys did seemed like love. The youngest brother was named Carl, and he was only 14, but he was just as troubled and sexually active as his older brothers. One night... He took the girls into a church, and he told them both to strip. They were all high and drunk and barely conscious. June watched as Jennifer lost her virginity to Carl. It was the ultimate inequality for the sisters. Jennifer was ecstatic. She'd done it. She was a woman now. She'd beaten her sister. It was almost too much to process. Two days later, she tried to strangle June. And then later that same day, June tried to drown her in a river. A car drove by and interrupted them, and the girls gasped for air and spluttered, I love you. God help us. God have mercy on us. Almost two weeks after Jennifer had sex for the first time, it was June's turn. She also lost her virginity to Carl in a barn, not a church. Everyone was drunk and high again. The girls felt sexy and mysterious and desirable, even though Carl was frankly terrible to them. He would say things like, why don't you goddamn bitches stop hassling us and get out of here? And June would write in her diary, we were very happy. When Carl ripped off Jennifer's wig and set it on fire, she took it as a compliment, telling herself that he found her prettier without it. The twins would always look back on that summer as the best time of their lives, the first time they had truly lived. Everything that occurred was magic, wrote Jennifer. It has brought a new awakening in me. It is like God gave me a chance, a chance to prove who I really am. June wrote about Carl, I thank you for hurting me when you did. But like everything, the summer came to an end. The boys moved back to America, and the girls looked around for something else to do with their boundless creativity and their stifled lives. At first, June and Jennifer continued to focus on boys. They made a little nest of hay at the edge of a park, and they managed to lure a few local boys to it. But it was the same old story. The boys used them and were cruel to them. The girls thought that they were in love. Before long, all the local teenagers were tired of the sisters. As their biographer wrote, 
Everywhere they went, they were teased, used, and rejected. And though they glimpsed the reasons, they never understood what they were doing wrong. They made an odd sight, two skinny girls slinking around town in their strange outfits. Sometimes they'd wear multiple layers of clothing. Sometimes they'd wear huge jackets that they'd bought from the Kennedy boys. They tried to look pretty, but everyone just thought that they looked weird. June wrote in her diary, What's wrong with us? Why is everyone running from us? It hurt her feelings that none of the boys wanted to be in a relationship with her, even though they were happy to use her for sex. Is it my color? She wrote. My bad luck? Slowly, the twins formed a new identity for themselves. If they couldn't be famous writers or beloved girlfriends, they'd become criminals instead. Famous criminals. They started committing small, odd crimes. They smashed the window of a school, wriggled inside, and watched TV. Why do this, wrote June. Nothing else to do. No friends. Nothing to fill in the cold hour. Winter is here and all the birds will fly back south. I wish I could be with them. They broke in a few more times and started stealing little things. I love being a burglar, wrote Jennifer. Of course, I feel guilty, but that's the cost of being a perfect thief. I think my ambition now is to be a thief, a real thief. They scrawled graffiti on a school. They tried to cut a phone cable and failed. They tried to cut the tires of a motorcycle and failed. They looked through the pockets of a stolen jacket and found nothing. They called the police to confess their crimes, desperate for excitement, for something to make them special. They broke windows, prank called the fire station, and talked about making bombs. It was notable that the girls often called the police. They really seemed to want to get caught. They were always writing down their dreams and recording their meaning using a little book of dream interpretations. And in that book, police represented protection and prison represented security. The girls also often dreamed of fire. And as their biographer wrote, fire offered its ancient symbolism of purification, sacrifice, and being born again. Only through flames could a new June and Jennifer emerge as separate, successful human beings. And so perhaps it's not surprising that the twins' biggest crime, their only big crime really, was arson. They burned down a tractor store, causing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of damage. The flames thrilled them even more than the Kennedy boys had. It was the biggest night of my life, wrote June. I know the Lord will forgive me. It's been a long, painful, hard year. Don't I deserve to express my distress? The twins were finally caught on November 8th, 1981, while trying to start another fire. Their parents were shocked. Their daughters, who were just a little shy, were arsonists? Gloria and Aubrey had assumed the girls were upstairs the whole time, working on their stories or playing with their dolls. They had no idea that their girls had taken their fate into their own hands and forced themselves to leave the house, forced themselves to grow up.
no one in the criminal justice system knew what to do about the twins. They were held in Puckle Church Prison for seven long months as everyone tried to figure out how they should be locked up and where. They were arsonists, so they were supposed to be a danger to society. And yet they were teenagers, children, really. They were undeniably weird. Some people even found them straight-up spooky with their synchronized movements and their downcast eyes. But it didn't seem right to sentence them to hard prison time. What to do with them? Where should they go? At first, the girls hardly moved in prison. One of the prison matrons had to put them in bed, tuck them in, and then use her own fingers to shut their eyelids. Then, June and Jennifer started moving and fighting over food, mostly, alternatively starving and gorging themselves. Each one wanted to be thinner than the other. They thought that the thinner they were, the more their cheekbones would stand out and the more beautiful they'd be. They fought so much that they were separated, and of course, this distressed them because they could never decide if they needed to be together or separate. The prison staff would spy on them when they were separated, fascinated by the girls, and they found that even when the girls were apart, they were almost always doing the same thing and sitting in the same position. Despite their synchronicity, the girls were fantasizing about killing each other again. Jennifer wrote in her diary that she wanted to strangle her sister, saying, it would be the best thing I would have done in my life. June luxuriated in a similar fantasy, writing, one of us is plotting to kill one of us. A thud on the head on a cool evening, dragging the lifeless body, digging a secret grave. I'm in a dangerous situation, a scheming, insidious plot. How will it end? We have become fatal enemies in each other's eyes. We scheme, we plot, and who will win? A deadly day is getting closer each minute, coming to a point of imminent death like hands creeping out against the night sky. Intentions of evil, blood, a knife, a mincer. I say to myself, how can I get rid of my own shadow? Impossible or not impossible? Without my shadow, would I die? Without my shadow, would I gain life? Sometimes the girls would lay in their beds, mere feet from each other, sensing the other's presence, power, and intentions as vividly as if they were each other. Jennifer wrote about lying in her bed, refusing to move because June wasn't moving either. I read her mind. I knew all about her mood. My mood. Her mood. Clash. Like spilled blood. My perception. Her perception. Twisting and clashing. Knowing. Cunning. Sly. And where will it all end? In death? In separation? The day before their 19th birthday, the twins' parents came to visit. The conversation was awkward. The twins barely spoke. But in her diary, where her tongue always loosened, Jennifer wrote, heartbreakingly, A most amazing and glorious thing has occurred. My parents actually came to visit me. It means more to me than anything. I always wanted something big to happen before I was 19. Finally, the girls were tried in May of 1982. 
Their defense lawyer hired a psychiatrist who diagnosed them as psychopaths and recommended that they be sent to Broadmoor, which was the notorious high-security psychiatric hospital that held gangsters, rapists, spree killers, and serial killers. The youngest person there at the time was 27. The twins were barely 19. They pled guilty to 16 joint counts of burglary, theft, and arson. And their sentence? They would be sent to Broadmoor indefinitely. It was the same sentence given to people like the Yorkshire Ripper. The girls were happy, though. They had a beautiful vision of Broadmoor, thinking that it was a place where kindly doctors and nurses would save them from themselves. They pictured a hotel-like place with a gym and a swimming pool and disco dances every night. They figured that they'd be there for a year or two at max, and then they'd be released back into the real world, where their lives could finally begin. After arriving at Broadmoor, the twins quickly realized that it wasn't the paradise they'd hoped for. It was just another form of prison. It didn't take long for them to break down. Jennifer attacked a nurse. June tried to strangle herself to death. They were separated. They despaired. Same old, same old. The girls had hoped that they'd thrive in Broadmoor and even make friends there, But as usual, their pact trapped them even more than handcuffs ever could. They fantasized about turning to their neighbors and just making small talk, cracking an easy joke. But they couldn't. Jennifer wrote, I really am getting fed up with my lack of self-confidence. Why can't I just say hello and break the barrier? One year stretched into two and then three, and still the girls weren't released. They were put on medication that made their eyesight blurry. They lost the urge to read and write. But something did happen in Broadmoor that changed their story, if not their lives. They befriended a reporter, a woman from the London Sunday Times. She was a white woman named Marjorie Wallace, and she'd become obsessed with the twins' story. Marjorie had made friends with the twins' parents at first and gained access to a lot of their writing, and she was struck by the girls' skill with words and the difference between their reputation as strange, silent, possibly stupid people and the personalities that their writing revealed. These were intelligent girls with rich inner lives, and almost nobody in the world knew that. Slowly, the girls actually started talking to Marjorie. She became the friend and advocate they'd always longed for. They desperately wanted to be recognized and famous through their writings, Marjorie said later, to have them published and to have their story told. And I thought that maybe one way of freeing them, liberating them, would be to unlock them from that silence. But even as Marjorie advocated for their release and tried to encourage them to write, the girls remained in Broadmoor, locked up their creativity slowly dripping away. Marjorie was writing a book about them, their biography, and Jennifer quipped, why don't you call it rag dolls? They really did feel like rag dolls, floppy, useless, hopeless. 
Jennifer was starting to grow paranoid, really paranoid. And she started to think that people were spying on her and plotting to kill her. June was trying to get out of there. She wrote a letter to the queen, asking the queen to pardon her and her sister. Sometimes they filled their time by getting crushes on male inmates, many of whom were rapists and murderers, or dressing up in elaborate costumes like they used to do. Old flashes of their creative inner lives. But nothing really changed. The twins watched murderer after murderer get released from Broadmoor, but no one came to release them. When I read excerpts from June and Jennifer's diaries, here's what strikes me the most. It's not their strange behavior or the creepy pact between them or their Cain and Abel type rivalry or their crimes or their sentences. It's how ordinary they are. June and Jennifer could never figure out how to be normal girls in the world, but on the page, they sound just like I did as a teenage girl. I, too, wrote obsessively in my diary, thinking that every guy who smiled at me was my soulmate, stressing over socialization, dreaming of being a writer, worrying that I was wasting my youth, wishing I could be nicer to my parents. So many times, June and Jennifer sound just like me. They sound just like you, too. I'm sure of it. They longed to be famous, but they also longed to be normal, And while they achieved fame for being abnormal, I don't think they ever realized just how normal they were in so many ways. Everything around them told them that they were freaks. The white kids who bullied them, the local boys who used them, the teachers who gave up on them. But so much about them was just teenage. Their weird inner lives, their imaginative play, their obsession with dressing up, their painfully intense crushes, their feelings as outsiders. If only someone could have told them, you feel weird, you feel alone, you want a relationship, you don't know how to make friends, every other teenager feels that way too. If only someone could have gone up to the girls and opened the gates to the bizarre and intense world of being a teenager and just said, come on in, everyone here is a weirdo too. But by the time June and Jennifer were released from Broadmoor, it was far too late to be normal. They weren't teenagers anymore. They had been locked up for almost 12 years. Finally, they got word that they were going to be released and sent to a new clinic and then on into the outside world. This was what they had been waiting for, right? But it wasn't that simple for them anymore. One more thing had to happen. The twins talked and talked and fought about it. They had decided that in order to be truly free, one of them would have to die. The twins had always known there was something unhealthy about their bond. Why do you think their diaries were so full of murder fantasies? They knew that they couldn't live forever like this. Nobody suffers the way I do, June wrote. Not with a sister. 
With a husband, yes. With a wife, yes. With a child, yes. But this sister of mine, a dark shadow robbing me of sunlight, is my one and only torment. And so the twins decided that in order for one of them to live a normal life, the other one would have to go. Because there was no normal if both of them were around. It wouldn't happen yet. They didn't want to die in Broadmoor. It would have to happen once they were released. Marjorie Wallace went to visit them one last time before their transfer to the new clinic. She brought her daughter. They were all having tea, laughing. And then suddenly Jennifer said, Marjorie, Marjorie, I'm going to have to die. Marjorie laughed nervously and responded, Don't be silly. You're 31 years old. You're just about to be freed from Broadmoor. You're not ill. But Jennifer said, We've decided. And Marjorie felt a stab of real fear. The twins had argued and argued about which one of them would have to die. But eventually, they decided that it would have to be Jennifer. As June said later, Jennifer knew that she wouldn't be able to live without her sister. Jennifer believed that June would have a better chance at the life they longed for, with a husband, a family, a job as a writer, if she wasn't around. She released me, June said later. The day before the girls were going to be transferred out of Broadmoor, Jennifer felt tired, and she kept throwing up. But she kept it secret from the staff so that they wouldn't make her stay behind. The next morning, a pair of nurses accompanied the girls onto a little bus that was going to drive them to the new clinic. The twins sat down. Jennifer put her head on June's shoulder and fell asleep with her eyes wide open. She never woke up. She was taken to the clinic and then rushed to the hospital, where she died less than an hour after arriving. Technically, she died of viral myocarditis, a rare heart condition known fittingly as a silent virus. But June says she died on purpose, died to set her sister free. When Marjorie heard the news, she felt a chill. The girls hadn't been joking. June laid a red rose on her sister's body and wrote in her diary, I kissed her stone-colored face. I went hysterical with grief. June wasn't just sad, though. She was feeling another strong emotion. Relief. Jennifer had set her free, and now she was going to live. She spent a year at the new clinic, taking classes, and then she was released fully. She moved into a halfway house, and eventually into her own apartment near to her parents. She tried to go by her middle name, Allison. A fresh start. She started talking more, even giving interviews to journalists. She wrote less and less. She used to be afraid to sleep too deeply because she was sure that her twin was waiting there, down in the depths of sleep, waiting to draw her into death. But now June saw Jennifer in her dreams, and she welcomed her. I used to miss her, she told a journalist. Now I've accepted her. She's in me. 
She makes me stronger. I accept the fact that she's gone now. That took me five years of grieving, crying all the time. Now all my tears are gone. They all dried up inside my eyes. I don't get lonely now. I've got her, haven't I? Well, 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 everyone, those are the Gibbons twins. Are you, like me, standing stock still in shock, sort of feeling in this fog of like, what just happened? They are so relatable and yet so mysterious and so sisterly and so otherworldly. And are they just in your heads now, like their voices from their diaries and are going to haunt you all day? Sorry. Welcome to my life. (laughs) Um, Please tell me all your thoughts and feelings about the Gibbons twins at criminalbroads at gmail.com or go to instagram.com slash criminalbroads to see photos of them. Okay. A couple other tiny, tiny things before I release you. Um, Thank you all for your kind, 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 kind responses to the Lloyd Dean update of the last episode. Listen to the last episode if you don't know what I'm talking about. I really appreciate it. None of you made me feel like an idiot, which is really valuable to me. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And just to clarify one thing, because a couple people, I, I I don't think it was clear. Lloyd Dean never lied to me. He never tried to trick me. He was never, um, he never withheld information from me. The information, the information that I was wrong about was a combination of seeing something in a newspaper article and my own, like, not putting several pieces together. So Lloyd Dean was not trying to con me. I promise you. Second of all, I'd like to thank this week's patrons, which I'm going to call the J Squad, Jennifer W. and Julene J. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Everyone else, you can go to patreon.com slash criminalbroads if you too would like to join the J Squad. And, you know, I told you this was the last week of Sister Month, and it is, it is, it is. But I might have a small, teeny tiny surprise for you. I might be popping back into your podcast feeds later this week. I'm 90% sure I am, but I'm still saying might just in case, you know, something happens. But I think you'll see me in a couple days, okay? Thank you always for being the best listeners ever. And I love you all, and I hope you're doing well and enjoying your summer. I'll see you later this week and then again next week as we plunge back into the wild world of, should we say, criminal broads who aren't necessarily sisters. The next story I have for you is a very unknown one and also a very intense one. So get excited. Love you. Talk to you later. Bye. Lord, help the mister who comes between me and my sister. And Lord, help the sister who comes between me and my man. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.